Now, if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. It's right at the end of the Old Testament. Just go to the last book, Malachi, go back a couple, and you'll be at Zechariah. And if you want to, put your other finger in Revelation chapter 12, okay? Now, we're going to have a lot of these verses, if not all of them, up on the screen for you. But this is my fourth Sunday uh, in doing this series of studies about what does the future hold, biblical prophecy in the last days. Uh, this morning, like other weeks, and I may not always remember to say it, but on a lot of these areas, there are differences of opinion in the interpretation among good Bible teachers. And you'll hear me say often, you've heard me say it the last three weeks, there are many different opinions on what this verse means. But I'm going to give you my view, which, in my thinking, has the least amount of problems to it. Okay, so I'm confessing I got problems with my own view, all right? And so you may be right and I may be wrong, but I doubt it. So uh, <laughs> that was a joke. Okay, so let's go. And uh, this morning, uh, we're looking at Armageddon. I, I'd venture to say everybody here has heard the word Armageddon in one context or another. Jerusalem. And then the second coming, of course, of Christ himself. And the emphasis morning is really on Jerusalem. Thus, the whole message is centering around the city of Jerusalem. I believe that Jerusalem is the most amazing city in the history of the world. I don't think there's one city in the world that compares to it. It's been around for over 4,000 years. The first time you read about it in the Bible is in Genesis 14. There is a very unusual character, person. Some believe it was the pre-incarnate Christ himself. Others believe he was a type of Christ. He's just kind of an enigma. You know enough to know he's different, but you don't, you're not positive which one of those fits. His name was Melchizedek, and he was the king priest of the city called Salem, so that was the first mention of the city, Jerusalem. Salem means peace, and that's what Jerusalem has as its uh, uh, adjective. It's been completely destroyed. It's been completely abandoned and even plowed like a field. Yet it has risen time and time again from its ruins. Jerusalem is the only city in the history of the universe that God himself founded. Listen to Isaiah 14.32. The Lord hath founded Zion. Doesn't say that of any other city. Only Jerusalem, as it said, was actually founded by the Lord God of heaven. In Ezekiel 5.5 it says this. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries <coughs> all around her. What's he saying? He's saying the omnipotent God chose the very spot where Jerusalem would be located and the very spot where the holy temple would be erected. The omnipotent God then chose Jerusalem as the center. In fact, some say it's the epicenter of the entire world. Back in about 1280 AD, a thousand years ago, 
We see there's a map that was created, and it's hanging today in Hereford Cathedral over in England. Now, it doesn't make a lot of sense as you're looking at, at that, but if you could focus in on that, and even if you can imagine at the very center of that circle, uh, you, you see a bullseye kind of, and that's where it's written Jerusalem. And that map was created a thousand years ago. I mean, that's absolutely incredible to me, and it's still hanging over there. And that's why we say Jerusalem is the epicenter of the entire uh, world. Zechariah 2.8 gives a promise concerning Jerusalem. Listen to this great promise. For thus says the Lord of heaven, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. You don't want to touch the apple of God's eye. I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curse thee. Trace it through the history for 4,000 years, and you'll see that's very true. Now, this morning, I want to give us just a brief panoramic view of the city of Jerusalem. We're not going to look to its past. We've done that. But we want to look to her future. And I want you to follow with me five movements this morning and uh, try to stay with me. Now, listen, I know and I confess these messages have not been easy, Okay. They haven't been easy to prepare, very honestly. So just say, ah, be sorry for me. You're right here on one, two, three. Ah, thank you very much. And, uh, and then I say, ah, to you, because you've, as my wife said one time, just thought of it dangerous, we're driving back. I, I had spoken seven times that Sunday, and we're driving back home to Washington, D.C. at the time. And I was a little bit... Uh, not the nicest to her. And I said something sarcastically. And uh, then she let me know I said something sarcastically. And I said, well, honey, you know, come on, I did preach seven times today. Good excuse, right? She's, honey, don't forget, I had to listen to you seven times. So, <laughs> so I think listening is probably more difficult, okay? I agree. So I took the rebuke, and if you want to rebuke, easier for me to stand up here than you to sit there, but we'll do the best what we can. So let's just move here, and we might, surprise, surprise, we might move a little quickly here, all right? So first of all, what I want you to see is Jerusalem peaceful, Jerusalem peaceful, and we've talked about the tribulation period. Daniel 7, we spent a lot of time on it, so I'm not going to uh, do that. But it's the first half of the tribulation period according to Daniel chapter 9. So it's at the beginning of the tribulation period. And Daniel 9, I, I said Daniel 9, 24 to 27, is the backbone of biblical prophecy. And I really believe that. Because he saves out of the 70 weeks of years that we talked about, he saves that 70th week, a week of seven years, that is distinct from the previous 483 years, or 69 weeks. All those 69 weeks are history. The 70th week is yet uh, in the future. And that's what he's talking about, what we're talking about uh, this morning. And at the beginning of the week, there is a covenant made by the person we're calling the Antichrist, Synonyms also with the first beast of Revelation 13, 2 Thessalonians 2, the man of sin, 2 Thessalonians 2, man of lawlessness, and evil, evil, demonically inspired man. 
And he becomes the leader of the world at that time. In fact, he's the leader of a 10-nation confederation from what once was the area of the Roman Empire that is now revived. And he has 10 nations that he has coordinated together. And they are the military, political, and economic power of the day. So it must be that with all the Islamic, the militant Islamic world being a threat to the existence of Israel, and you see it on your news, and I read about it too, where they say the only good Jew is a dead Jew, push them into the Mediterranean Sea, there is no future for Israel, they need to be annihilated. Now there's going to come a time when apparently they're going to feel that they need somebody else to help them and protect them. So along comes the Antichrist with the power of Satan behind him, by the way. And he apparently guarantees them the right to peacefully live in the land. And he's backing up his promise with the military, political, and economic might he has established in bringing that ten kingdom confederation, ten nation confederation uh, together. Daniel 9 further mentions <coughs> that Jerusalem, Israel now, is enjoying the worship system as they had previously to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. 2,000 years, they, they haven't had a temple. They haven't had a central place of worship. But in the tribulation period, in the first half, which is three and a half years of peace, somehow an agreement has worked out that they've been able to build a temple. Because Daniel makes it plain, they're in there and they're worshiping and offering animal sacrifices again. You say, well, what happened to the Dome of the Rock? One of the holy places of Israel, I don't have a clue. Is it in operation then? I don't have a clue. Has it been blown up? I don't have a clue. All I know, there is a temple of Israel that's in Jerusalem uh, at this time. And trust me, no Jew I've ever talked to wants the building and rebuilding of the temple in any place but the temple site. So they want this temple on the very site of Herod's temple uh, 2,000 years ago before it was uh, destroyed. So this man of lawlessness will now move from the tactic that he begins with Israel as a man of peace. In fact, he's the prince of peace. And he comes promising peace. And he does that for three and a half years. And then something happens that moves this prince of peace from a peaceful man and he becomes the, the prince of crushing power. In fact, last week we saw that there's a coalition of nations under Gog, the leader Gog. That's not a name like John or Bill. It's, it's a, a name of a title. And he has a coalition from the north, as you can see on the map, from the east, from the south, and from the west that he forms. And um, it could be that and if you look at those countries, the two things they have in common today, when you look at it, Iran and uh, Libya, uh, the Russia, former Soviet Union, Turkey, uh, and Sudan, when you look at that coalition, they all have two things in common. Number one, they hate Israel, and they're also characterized by militant fundamentalism. So when you put those two things together, it could be as they see now the Jews are worshiping, they have a temple, that they mount up this, 
this surprise attack, and they come down upon Israel. Now, what I didn't share with you last week and what I want you to see uh, next is what I see as the timing as to when this takes place. And we can't be certain, so let me say again, a lot of different people have a lot of different views. They may be wrong. I may be wrong. Whatever the case is, I've looked at the views, and I've come out with what view makes has the least amount of problems to it. And that is that this coming Islamic invasion takes place at the end of the first three and a half years. Now, it's covering the three and a half years, but I think it, the invasion takes place at the very close of the three and a half years. Now, I think it takes place at that time because, as we saw last week, we know it takes place during a time when Israel is dwelling in peace in their land, and they are worshiping, and there are no walls, and there are no uh, structures that are keeping the enemy out. They don't need them anymore because this 10-nation confederation is promised protection for them, and he's going to guarantee it. Now, I always have a question. I raised it last week. What in the world gives this, uh, this conspiracy under God the boldness to attack Israel when they're protected by the greatest military, economical, political power in the world. And the only answer I can give to you is this, extreme hatred, extreme militant hatred that they don't like the temple, they don't like the Jews, and they come down, uh, and of course they're under the power of Satan, and they make that attack uh, upon Israel. Now, as you remember, we said last week, that military leader, that Antichrist, who promised protection, you don't read of his coming to their aid one time when this, uh, when this invasion takes place. He's just totally silent. You don't find the United Nations. You don't find anyone else coming to Israel's protection. And it looks like they're going to be annihilated and destroyed. But one person came to their uh, aid, and that person is God Almighty. And in that invasion, and when they saw the Lord come to their side, that began uh, the, the progress that is going to be made uh, that will culminate three and a half years later when Israel will look upon him whom they have pierced and they'll be converted at, at that time. And so the Lord has shown himself as Lord of heaven and earth. Now, this event is seen by the Antichrist, it seems to me. And I'm reading a little bit here, so uh, uh, take it with a grain of salt. But it's seen by the Antichrist as the opportune time now to break his peace covenant with Israel and demand that the Jewish people begin worshiping him. And not only that, but the entire world. And as you're going to see, in the world, there is going to be a tremendous economic, political, military pressure to declare that this Antichrist is God and you to worship him. In fact, you've got to get a mark of a beast to even buy food and commerce. The mark of the beast is 666, according to Revelation, and you need that mark. And if you don't have that mark, you can be put to death. And so there's a whole lot of power going, going on at that time. Daniel prophesied that this 10-kingdom confederation and antichrist will, quote-unquote, devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it in pieces End of quote. He even gives how long this plundering will take place. He says that it's going to be for a time and times and half a time. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. If you add one plus two classes, how, how much? 
Oh, good. Three. Now, if you add half to that, now that comes to three and a half. And so it fits right into this segment of the second half of the tribulation uh, period. Now, Jeremiah called that last half, you can see it up there if you know, go back just uh, to the previous one for a minute. He calls that, if you look at that second half, as Jacob's trouble. Now go to the, uh, to the verse, if you would. And so here's what he says, alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. I mean, just think in your mind of all the devastations around the world, and even, even think of Holocaust, think of the worst things that you can think of. He says, that day is so great, there's none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, for Israel. Yet, he gives us promise. Now, always keep this. We've, we're going through some pretty dark times here. He says then at the end, yet he shall be saved out of it. There's always hope. There's always hope in God. There's always hope in the gospel. There's hope for you. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you're not going to be around at that time. Remember the chart where the rapture takes place before the seven-year tribulation period? You won't be there for the tribulation period if you are genuinely a believer and part of the body of Christ, the church of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And so we know also from reading Revelation uh, chapter 19 in the end that God wins in the end. But until that time, there's going to be a lot of dark days of this happening, even calling it Jacob's trouble. What did the Lord Jesus Christ call it? He called it, listen to this, Matthew 24, he called it the great tribulation. Not just tribulation, the great tribulation. Not just the tribulation period, the great tribulation period. That's the last uh, three and a half years. The Lord Jesus said, the great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been spared. Now, it seems to me this is the time, the middle of the tribulation, after the uh, Islamic invasion, as, we, as I understand it, and then something happens that then you move from three and a half years peace to three and a half years of persecution for the Jews. What is it? It's when Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 15. He gives signs, huh? signs of the end and said, these are the beginning of sorrows. Then he says, these shall be the end. And you can trace that through. But then he says this. But when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel in the prophet, when you see that, by the way, Mark uses the masculine pronoun. So he's not speaking of an event. He's not even speaking of a thing. He's speaking of a person. When you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, in the temple of Jerusalem, and he's now declaring himself to be God, demanding Israel to worship him and the world to worship him. That's the beginning. It's going to go on for three and a half years. Then Jesus said, every one of you Jews, get out of town. Get out of Jerusalem. Whatever you're doing, stop doing it and get out. There is coming a time, great tribulation, upon you that the world has never seen uh, before. So that's apparently uh, the, the sign given to the Jew, the key sign uh, of what's going to happen in, in that regards. Now let's move. And let me just say one other thing. If you had to take this whole tribulation period and just say, well, what's the purpose of it? What is God's purpose in this? I, I want you to think of three Ps. It's a preparatory purging process. 
Now say that on, when I count to three, say it with me, class. And we're going to say a preparatory purging process. Are you ready? One, two, three. Preparatory purging process. That's the reason for it. And God is preparing Israel who rejected her Messiah at his first coming and crucified him. We don't have any king but Caesar. But at his second coming, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced, and all Israel will be saved. Now, let's, let's move quickly. Uh, Jerusalem peaceful. Now we go to Jerusalem persecuted. And that becomes the, the theme of the second half of the tribulation. Now, in this chapter, we see a snapshot of Satan's hatred for Israel uh, from the day that God first caught her. Let me remind you why, according to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, 6, 8, why God chose Israel, all right? Now, we're not going to take the time to read all that, but he talks about they're a treasured possession out of all the people of the earth, but it's not because, verse 7, you're more in number, not because you're better. Oh, then God, why did you choose Israel? Why didn't you choose England? Why didn't you choose America? Why didn't you choose Venezuela? Why didn't you choose uh, Rwanda? Why did you choose Israel, as your chosen people. And the only, I've had people answer me, ask me that for over close to 60 years. Why did God choose Israel? And the only answer I have comes in two words. It's the only answer I know of. And if you can help me out better than that, I'd welcome it. Notice in verse 7, it says, it wasn't that, that it, it's that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. So if you ask me, why did God choose Israel? You know what my answer is? Two words, just because. Just because. God, listen, as the sovereign God, he can do anything he wants, except violate his own character. Can't violate himself. But God is sovereign. And in that sovereignty, he says, I'm taking a peculiar people from the seed of Abraham. And I'm going to choose them to be a repository for the word of God, to be the seed of the savior of the world, the Messiah of Israel and to be a witness to the world. And he says, I'm setting my love upon you. Now, who else knows that besides what the Bible says and what you know? Well, Satan knew it, didn't he? So if you turn to Revelation chapter 12, I just want to see, uh, I want you to see a couple of really uh, quick things interesting because all this Daniel, Zechariah, Revelation, it all fits together. Now, I know you're not going to remember it all getting thrown at you. You're going to get confused. You're going to remember Zechariah, this, and you say, I forget now what it all said. But it'll come together the more you study, I promise. Okay? Someone asked me last week, how long did it take you to, uh, to prepare that message? And I answered them as honestly as I could. I said, I don't mean to appear arrogant. I really don't. But in all, uh, in all honesty, it took me a lifetime. Because these aren't the kind of things you can get in one class or one message, and then you, you got your whole uh, uh, thinking on scheme of prophetic things outlined. But Revelation 20, it fits together. Verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. So you got three people here that that I think are easily identified. You don't have to be scared of Revelation. Don't have to be scared of Revelation 12. Who is the woman? No question about it. In my mind, it's Israel, okay? Now, why does he use the sun, the moon, uh, and the uh, 12 stars to describe the woman? Because if you look at Genesis 37, uh, 9, that's exactly how he describes Israel. That's her exact description. Well, who's the sun and the moon? Jacob and Rachel. Who are the 12 stars? The 12 tribes of Israel. So I don't think there's any question. He's really almost quoting from, uh, 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 from, from Psalm 
uh, in the Old uh, Testament, Psalm 37, 9. Now, the 12 sons then represent the, the sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. Secondly, you see that the woman, verse 2, she was pregnant and in birth pangs, and she's about ready to give birth. Now, who is she giving birth to? Well, if you look down uh, into, uh, into verse uh, 4, the woman who's about to give birth so that when she bore her child, or the King James says her man-child, uh, that's the dragon, that's Satan, he wants to devour it. So, verse 5, she gave a birth to a male child. Now, she describes the male child. Who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron? Read Psalm 2. What does he say? Messiah will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. You don't have to be rocket scientists. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Who does Satan hate more than anyone else? You know. He hates Christ. Why does he hate Christ? Because God is in Christ. He hates God. And why does Satan hate you? Because it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so ever since the he knew all the promises God shows Israel. He set his love on them, his promises, word of God, seed of Messiah, witness to the world. All this is coming through uh, the nation of Israel. So what can he try to do? Destroy Israel. If he can destroy Israel, then he can destroy all the other things. So the dragon comes after him. And notice uh, in, in uh, verse 5, uh, one is to rule all the nations of honor, but her child is caught up to God into his throne. What in the world is that? Simple. You know what it is. When was the man-child caught up to heaven? At his ascension. And that's exactly what happens. The man-child, Jesus, is ascended to heaven. And the woman then fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, you got that nailed down, right? Divide 1,260 by 360, and what's it come out, class? Right, three and a half years. Time times half a time, three and a half seasons. 1,260 days three and a half years. Now, you're confused because we talked about the ascension, then all of a sudden we're talking about the great, the great tribulation. In the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, not just a verse here and there, many verses, that's what caused the prophets uh, so much trouble. That's why Peter says they inquired diligently about it. The, they couldn't bring together the truths about Messiah. Why? Because the prophet often could see the two mountaintops of prophecy called the first coming and the second coming, but they didn't see the huge gap between, which we know has become the church age. And the Old Testament never says a word about the church. Why? The church is a mystery. The, it never says a thing about the rapture. Why? Behold, I show you a mystery. He then gives the mystery of the rapture. What is a mystery? Something mysterious? No. Get Columbo out of your mind. What the mystery is, is something previously concealed that is now revealed. Not difficult, it's just it wasn't made known. Okay? So that's why you'll see this, this thing of the first and second coming prophecies uh, uh, really tied together even in, in one verse. And so between verse 5 and 6, there is evidently a tremendous time lapse, which we know as the, uh, the age of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we get to verse 6, all of a sudden, we're thrust back into that time called the Great Tribulation. And now Satan once again vents his anger and his wrath on Israel. So we read in verse 6 of Rome, uh, Revelation 12, and the woman fled in the wilderness, and she was nourished for 1,260 days. 
So that's where there's the divine protection upon Israel, those 1260 days, those last three and a half years, otherwise she's going to be uh, annihilated. And Satan is going to try to devour them. Now notice Revelation 12, 13 and 14. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman who was given the two wings of the great eagle so she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished time, times, half a time, three and a half. Same three and a half years that we're talking about. Now, Remember, as I told you last, the last two weeks, Satan here called the dragon often operates uh, in the camouflage uh, of counterfeit. Uh, and so you have a counterfeit trinity operating here. Dragon corresponds to God the Father. Antichrist, anti means not only against, it means in the stead of. Antichrist called also the first beast in Revelation 13. He corresponds to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then the second beast... Uh, uh, is called the false prophet, and he relates to the Holy Spirit. And so you have the false trinity operating at, at this time. Now stay with me, and I think if you can stay with me, I think you'll get it where we're going here. I want you to see how quickly Satan, the, the dragon, uh, uh, delegates his satanic working power, even doing miracles, to the Antichrist, and that he also delegates power to the false prophet who pays all his attention in exalting the Antichrist, the first beast. Now, if you forgot that, just listen to the verses. Revelation 13, 5. And the beast, the first beast, the Antichrist, was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Are you with me? Time, times, half a time. Are you with me? 1260 days, three and a half years. Are you with me? 42 months divided by 12 equals three and a half years. You see how consistent everything is. So there's nothing out of balance here. Then it says in Revelation 13, 11, 12 about the false prophet, uh, the second beast. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, kind of the idea, peaceful. And it spoke like a dragon exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. He makes this earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Now, what in the world is he saying there? What is the Holy Spirit doing in our midst today? He's not pointing you to himself. He's pointing you to the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall glorify me. What's the second beast doing here? The false prophet. He's pointing everything to exalt the first beast, who is the Antichrist, who is uh, the man of sin. And apparently this first beast, the Antichrist, it says, whose mortal wound was healed. Now, what does that mean? You have a counterfeit resurrection. You have what appeared of his being put to death. Some people believe, well, he wasn't really put to death. He probably looked like he was dead. We don't know. Whichever it was, there was the power of dra dragon to deceive the world so that it appears there he is, the Antichrist, risen from the dead. Remember we said Satan always operates in the realm of the counterfeit. So he takes a truth and then he counterfeits it for himself. Now, the point of all this is for three and a half years, the Jews will again be forced out of their land and the beloved city of Jerusalem. 
The temple will be desecrated by the Antichrist, number two, as he sets himself up in the temple, demanding that the world worship him. Three, Israel would be annihilated if the Lord hadn't come to their side. But things are going to get even worse before they get better. Now, let's go quickly. Jerusalem, number third, Jerusalem plundered. We've seen in peace. They've been persecution, but now they're plundered. Now, we're going to move from the middle of the tribulation period to down at the end of the tribulation uh, period. And we're going to see what happens in this intensity uh, of persecution against the nation of Israel. Now, I hope you're not afraid of the book of Revelation. Uh, I hope you read it because you know what? As you know, God promises blessing to those who read Revelation. He promises. Blessed is whoever reads this book, you're going to be blessed. Some of you are scared of it. Don't be scared of it. It's not difficult. There are things we're going to differ on on figurative language, etc., but it's not to be difficult. In fact, did you know you don't even have to manufacture an outline for the book? John, the apostle, when he's on exile in Patmos, he gives you the outline of the book that he's writing on the Isle of Patmos. How do I know? Look at that in chapter 1, verse 19 in Revelation. John is told by Jesus, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, the things that are, and those that are to take place after this. Got it down? There's your outline of Revelation. What are the things that you have seen? What did you see in the past, John? That's chapter 1. That's the glorified Christ in heaven. What are the things that are, John, in about 95 A.D.? The things that are are the seven churches, Revelation 2 and 3. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, etc. Philadelphia, Laodicea. Those are the things that are. And what are the things that shall be, John? That's chapter 4 to the end of the book. Okay? Now, it's interesting that when you get to chapter 4 after verse 1, you never see the church again until the second coming in Revelation 19. Why? Because the church has been raptured. Why? Because he starts chapter 4, verse 1, God saying, come up hither. That's the rapture, calling the church home. And then everything takes place in chapter 4 to chapter 19 in the book of Revelation has to do with that seven-year period of time we've been looking at called the seven-year uh, seven tribulation period. Now, uh, let, 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 let's go here. So this is the day of the Lord that we studied two weeks ago. This is the tribulation period. And this is in particular the great tribulation period, Jacob's trouble. But what you have in Revelation is a series of judgment. And I, I'll take five seconds here. You got seven seal judgments, seven trumpets, seven uh, bowl judgment. The seventh seal opens the seven trumpets, seven trumpet opens the seven bowls. What you have is a pattern of progression of hostility against Israel. The seven bulls are the worst, much in more intensity than the seven trumpets, which are more intensive than the seven seals. Seven seals probably forget, uh, start telling you about what's happening in the world at the first half of the tribulation. But when that seventh seal is open to the trumpets, that's when you begin Jacob's trouble, last half of the tribulation period. That then culminates in the seven trumpets, which brings us right to the end uh, of of the, of the tribulation period. So in Revelation 16, 12, 3, 13, up on the screen, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And when I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean, we call them demons, three unclean spirits like frogs. So here we see the drying up of the Euphrates River, 
Why is she important? Because that is the water boundary between the Holy Land and also uh, all the uh, Asia to the east, including China. And so that Euphrates River now is dried up. So it gives access from the east for people to get uh, to Israel, even to walk across it. And then Satan releases demonic spirits to bring together the armies of the world. Why are they brought together? To destroy Jerusalem once and for all. And so it says in verse 16 of Revelation 16, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now that's what we call the battle of Armageddon. Now, what I want you to think of is this. I want you to think of Armageddon, and that's a picture of it taken from up in Mount Carmel, looking down. Napoleon called that the greatest battlefield in all the world. And that's looking down to the Valley of Jezreel and Plain of Esdraelon. And uh, it's been the scene of many battles. But that's, that's, and by the way, Armageddon is made up of two Hebrew words, Arm and Megiddo. Arm it means mountain. And Megiddo is the name of the, of, of the place going back uh, prior to the days of Solomon. So Armageddon is the Mount of Megiddo. And so we're on the Mount of Megiddo looking down uh, at, at the uh, battle place below. It's about 55 miles uh, north of Jerusalem. But what I want you to think of, I, I want you to get that word battle out of your mind once and for all, because we think of the battle of Gettysburg or something at one locality. This is what I call the campaign of Armageddon. It starts up north, but Megiddo is not the prize. The prize is what? Jerusalem. Destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple. So it starts there, and then through a series of events with Satan behind the leaders of these governments, but God ultimately, the sovereign God, controlling everything for his greater purpose. When you put all the passages together, Daniel, Zechariah, Revelation, and so forth, uh, you see that this uh, tremendous world dictator has a, a satanic power that has been delegated to him. And they begin coalescing their forces. They get the king of the south, some believe that's Egypt, African nations, king of the north, Russia, rebuilt after three and a half years, her co coalition, and they're going to make their moves against the world dictator. So world dictators bring them all together, but suddenly they turn on him, and he puts that down, that revolt down, and it seems like that's quelled, and he's still moving toward uh, Jerusalem, and then he gets this, uh, this word from Revelation 9, 16, that there's an army, now get this, numbering 200 million soldiers from the east. So that's got to be probably a Red China coalition of Eastern. You know, uh, Red China has the largest army in the world today. You know how many soldiers they have? About 2.3 million. That's a lot of soldiers. You know how large this army, this coalition is? 200 million, according to the book of Revelation. So the assembly, they're assembled by demonic forces. They gather at Armageddon, but the real prize is going to be Jerusalem. So you're going to see up there, Revelation 16, 16 to 21, those verses. And I want you to start reading uh, those verses there. And as you do, this will be almost impossible, but listen to me. Read the verses, listen to me, save a little bit of time. What these verses say is there's going to be flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. There's going to be the worst earthquake 
ever in the history of the world. And it's going to take the great city, probably Jerusalem, split it into three parts. The cities of the nations are going to be collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away. The mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of 100 pounds each fell upon men. And they cursed God. What you'll see is this. And you'll see this phrase in Revelation time and again after the, uh, after the uh, bulls and the trumpet judgment. And they cursed God. Some even prayed, God, just kill me. Get me out of my misery. And they did not repent. And you would think all this judgment and wrath being poured out, they say, oh, God, have mercy on my soul. They don't do that. They don't do that. The hardness of man's heart. It's amazing. And all of a sudden, there's a sign of the Son of Man in heaven, which is the Son of Man himself. And he has all these armies now coalescing together. It's his last really great attempt to destroy God, to destroy Jerusalem, to destroy Israel. His final challenge to divine sovereignty and power, except for a limited one after the millennial kingdom. And um, on that day, they'll be engaged finally on the very day Christ returns. Now we're just about done. You've done well. Give me five more minutes. We'll be, we'll be out of here. Jerusalem purified is point number four. Three things, and I'm just going to mention them very quickly, and then we're going to move. Number one, there is repentance. There's repentance. I just love this verse, uh, verse where he says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they crucified Jesus. They shall mourn for him. As one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So here's genuine repentance now brought uh, to the Israel people as they see the Lord, the Son of Man, sign in heaven. Secondly, there's cleansing from sin. In response to Israel's repentance and faith, the Lord is now going to wash them clean. On that day, Zechariah 13, 1, on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Don't you love that verse? William Cowper, many of you musicians love him. He took this verse right here. And as he was reading it, God spoke to his heart and he sat down and he wrote that beautiful hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel. Those are the last, days, last words I heard my dad speak. He'd been suffering, uh, been terminally ill. And uh, my six siblings and I, seven children, we gathered around the, the bed and we were singing hymns to him and reading scripture. And then daddy, I hadn't heard his voice for some time. And then all of a sudden, dad came out of that bed like a ramrod and he came up and he said, I can still see him, point his finger. And he said, I know there is a fountain filled with blood. And he wanted us to sing that. We sang that and then he went to heaven. Uh, there's repentance, there's cleansing from sin. Uh, number three, there's idols and false prophets are removed. Those are the two besetting sins of Israel, and they're going to be removed as the very unclean spirit, probably demonic activity that caused people to turn from God. And the verse says, on that day, declares the Lord, I'll cut off the names of the idols from the land, so they'll be remembered no more. I'll remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. So the whole tribulation period has been a preparatory purging process. And so now they've been purified. Best thing is we say for last, Jerusalem preserved. That's the second coming of Christ, okay? Zechariah 14, 1-4 is my favorite verses in the Old Testament. 
with Zechariah being my favorite book. Why? The theme of Zechariah in every chapter is Jesus Christ. Every chapter, it's Jesus Christ. So he says in 14, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be a divider in your midst. You got the picture? Soldiers come in, they plunder you, and then they take the spoil, they take what is yours, and they're going to take it now. And instead of taking it home and rejoicing and having a celebration, it's like a mockery. It's like an in-your-face. Now they're taking it, and they're divided among themselves right in front of the Jewish people who are still, some of who are still alive. God says, for I will gather all the, not Satan, not the Antichrist, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Cities shall be taken, the houses plundered, the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. Listen to this. Those of you, I want you to close your eyes if you've been to Israel with me, and I want you to see yourself standing on the Mount of Olives, Okay. He says, on that day, his feet, whose feet, Jesus? On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies between Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, a very wide valley, so that one half the mount shall be moved northward and the other half southward. So here you have Jerusalem plundered by the nations, houses are destroyed, women are raped, half of the city is taken prisoner of war. Earlier in Zechariah, he says, two out of every three Israelis perish during this time, and if it were not for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, they would be absolutely annihilated. But again, I point out in verse 2, it is our sovereign God is the one who has gathered nations to battle. Now comes the second coming of Christ when his feet light on the Mount of Olives. This is going to be no coming like the manger scene. This will be the most dramatic and shattering event in all of human history. And Jesus comes in power and great glory. And his coming is like you see lightning from east, from the west. The skies are lit up. The sun, the moon no longer shine. Jesus takes a hold of the world at the earth and he shakes it, it says, in Haggai. This is the day like no other day. And now I see the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Just like I will show you a sign, you shall find a babe in wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. That's the sign. What's the sign? The birth of Jesus. What's the sign of his coming? It's the coming of Jesus. It's the person of the baby who was born years earlier, now is the King of kings, Lord of lords. And so John describes it this way. Revelation 19, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges, and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped blood, and by the name which he is called the Word of God, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, that's you and me, by the way, were following him on white horses, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of honor. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We win. God wins. And if you're on the side of the Lord, you know him as your Savior. In the end, you win. Summary, three things. The Lord will dwell in Jerusalem 
says in Zechariah, I will dwell in the midst of thee. Number two, the Lord is going to rule the earth from Jerusalem, Zechariah 14.9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one in his name one. Thirdly, the Lord is going to receive the worship of the whole world in Jerusalem. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to keep the feast of booths. Ah, what a day that's going to be. The Lord is coming. There's a great day coming. It's a great day for Jerusalem. Peaceful persecution. They're going to be plundered. They're going to be purified. And they're going to be preserved forever. And we're going to be in the new Jerusalem. You have been an incredible congregation for four weeks. Because how in the world you stayed with me, unless you're a good faker, I have no idea. But you really did well. I mean that. You're incredible. And I thank you for that. Let's bow in prayer, shall we? Yeah, the heart now just goes out to anybody who might be here that says, you know, Harry, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. I don't know that I know him. Put your faith in Christ right now. Just say something like this. It's more the attitude of the heart than any words I can give you. But Lord Jesus Christ, the best way I know how, I trust you alone as my Savior for my sins. I look to you, Lord, and whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Christian, the day's coming. Let's make our lives count. I mean, let's really sell out to Christ. The Lord is the king of the universe and the king of our lives. Thank you, Father, for your time you've given us to look into your word. Thank you for giving us your word. Bless these people. Help us to make whatever you put in our heart to do decisions that will matter 10,000 years from tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.